Morning, everyone. The cost of being a disciple. Large crowds were travelling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able, with 10,000 men, to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? This was from Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 34. Thanks, Bonnie. That's great. Well, last week we started into a, well, it was sort of a, a beginning point for a series uh, that we're going to look at now f- uh, for the next five or so weeks called The Core. Um, <clears throat> we dipped into it a little bit last week, but I felt like God was uh, speaking into our, our congregation a message uh, from 1 Samuel, uh, an example of Jonathan's friendship to David. When David was going through some, some tough times where Jonathan's father was after him and wanting to kill him, and David needed some, some, just some brotherly strength, and Jonathan came through. And 1 Samuel 23, 16 says, Jonathan strengthened his hand in the Lord. And we talked about just being there for one another, being a part of one another's lives. And, and we talked about, I think I left you with a challenge, didn't I? A challenge to, to be praying about your commitment to a connect group, a group of people that you can connect with in and through the week. Uh, so it's not just your connection on a Sunday, but as you go through your week, that you can connect in with a group of people, like-minded people who study scripture, who uh, encourage, who build up, who strengthen the hand uh, of one another in God. I wonder if you had the opportunity to pray through that. I want you to keep doing that. Uh, this week we've got out on the, in the foyer, there's a table uh, that has a list of the groups that we already have going. We've got 11 or 12 groups already going here in the church, which is fantastic, and those groups are, are well attended. Uh, I don't want to say go out there and just grab, grab the, the people that, that lead those groups and say, I want to be part of your group, but I want you to pray about it. But if we tried to get everyone into those 12 groups, what we would have is 12 small churches. So what we want to do is we want to say, actually, is there any space for me, as you pray, is there any space for me to help facilitate a group? Maybe you've got a home that would be great to have a group come and be a part of, and you go, I could, I could have people in my home once a week, once a fortnight, however it might look. Maybe you're thinking, I care for people and I love people and I love having people in and around me. I might be able to facilitate you might, you might think, I might be able to run the Bible study like I see someone else doing it, and that's okay. 
But God might be challenging you to say, hey, I could, I could take a small group of people and start leading it forward. I want you to be praying about that. And if you think maybe that's something that you could do or you could consider or you could think about, I'd love to have a chat with you. And I'd love to be able to say, let's get into some training and some considering and thinking about what, what it means to facilitate a group. If that's you, come and see me afterwards. Um, have a look at what the small groups are out there. You might go, that just suits me. And you might want to speak to the leader of those groups and say, hey, well, tell me more about it. Tell me what you do. And over the next sort of month or so, we're going to have, uh, try and get some of those people up, some of the leaders up, to share a little bit about their group so that we can start to really formulate this sense of being together, having a space where we can be together. Strengthening one another's hand in the Lord, not just on a Sunday, but through the week. That would be good, wouldn't it? Well, we're going to start into the core today. And, and as I thought about the core, I thought, everyone is made up of, of DNA, aren't we? We're all made up of DNA. And the dictionary defines DNA as the fundamental and distinctive characteristics or qualities of something, especially when they're regarded as unchangeable. So DNA really is sort of unchangeable, I suppose. It's that, that core thing. If you go to the next slide, Joe, you'll see uh, that core, that, that all those little bubble things that, that fit into this helix. And if someone's a scientist, you might be able to tell me a little bit of what all that actually means. But these strands of DNA actually formulate who we are that make us unique, that make us who we are. And if we consider the church as a strand of DNA, what I want to look at with the core is what are the DNA sort of strands that hold the whole together, hold the whole thing together? What are the non-negotiable threads of KSBC, but also of the wider church of tw in 2020 that are non-negotiable? And as we look through the next five weeks, the pillars of the church, I suppose, they're not new things. You're not going to go, wow, Pete's made this all amazing new stuff. It's not new. You're probably going to go, well, that just makes sense. However, the church today is in a much different culture than it used to be. I don't think I'm wrong in acknowledging that the Christian church, as we, we understand it, would be in decline. Yes, there are denominations that are stepping ahead, which is great. But there are less people, generally, in church, in Australia especially, than there were 30 years ago. Now, there's plenty of reasons that we can give for that. Sunday trading didn't help the church. Definitely Sunday coffees that didn't help the church. Sunday sport probably has a fair bit to do with it. But perhaps the church also has a little bit to play in its own decline. And as I said before... DNA is an unchangeable strand. These fundamental and distinctive characteristics are there. They're not gone, yet I wonder if they've been compromised the way that we work those distinctive out. I wonder if perhaps we do things in a way that isn't so re relevant to the world who is seeking something different. And it's not just for those who have grown up in a world where the church is nothing for them. It's also for those Christ followers who have decided they were going to church, they were following Jesus, or at least professing to follow Jesus, and no longer Jesus is their priority. And I wonder if the church in general 
has gone more on a, a campaign to entice and attract people in. And I wonder if the church has tried to develop concepts and ideas. And when I say the church, I'm not talking KSBC, I'm talking the church. Concepts and ideas, programs, production, in order to compete with this increasing demand of people that they want something more. Steve Chalk, in his book, Intelligent Church, he poses the following regarding church. Steve Chalk, he's a a British uh, theologian um, and church planter. He says, We shouldn't be so concerned about what shape the church will take as we enter into a post-Christendom era. Rather, we should be concerned with the substance from which our churches should be formed. We shouldn't be concerned about what shape the church will take, but we should be concerned about the substance that's within our church. What are the substances upon which the church should be formed? What is the DNA that should formulate our churches? What is at the core of the Christian church that we cannot lose? You know, as I look into scripture, there's, there's two verses that I think give us the majority of this. Two verses, two commands of Jesus to his followers. The great commandment, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Then there's a great commission. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of age. In these verses, I believe we find all we need and what we're going to do over the next five weeks is in these verses to fulfill what Jesus is asking us to do, our DNA. Follow the things in these verses and we'll find a church that lives out a mission of sharing Jesus, caring for others and encouraging Christian growth. Not that we just use those verses, we seek the whole Bible to, as our inspiration. But these verses allow us to draw out uh, these pillars, these DNA strands, the core. So this morning we're going to explore what it means to be a a Jesus person, a Jesus type of person, I suppose, to truly be a disciple of Jesus. And as we heard Bonnie share with us through Scripture, uh, to count the cost of following Jesus. So we're going to focus on a little part of that, that passage. We're going to focus on teaching them to obey. That's discipleship, obedience. For all who follow Jesus, to become more like Jesus, we must be obedient to Jesus and his commands, his words, and his actions. So let's pray and explore what it means to be a Jesus person. Now, God, we pray that as uh, we hear your word today, uh, that's a, a pretty heavy word for us, I pray you help us to understand how we must change, how we must transform to be more like you. May our hearts be open to your word. Amen. I know some of you enjoy running here, and some I think I talked about it last week, exercise isn't my strong point, but I have a friend who runs ultramarathons. Who's ever heard of an ultramarathon? A few of you. Whoever, has anyone run an ultramarathon? Oh, oh, Daniel, how far? How far-ish? 45. 45. 
Yeah, for, it's, it's a bit longer than a marathon. Well, marathon's 42, yeah? But that extra three kilometres, that's got to do something to your brain. I, I, I can't even think 42. Um, I thought Tim was putting his hands up. I'm like, yes, but no, no, no. no. Ultramarathon, I've got a friend who runs ultramarathons. She does 100 kilometres. 100 kilometres. I get tired driving 100 kilometres, let alone running 100 kilometres. It's unbelievable. 100 kilometres is incredible. I can't fathom it. If I was to say to you, though, Come and watch my friend Connie to go and support her and cheer her on in her quest to run 100 kilometres. Some of you might go, yeah, Pete, that'll be all right. I can come and support Connie on that. That'll be great. We can do that. But what if I was to say to you, right, come with me. We're going to start training for the ultramarathon. <laughs> Apart from laughing, as you already have, because you know that's probably not going to happen in my case. <laughs> I'm not sure that many of us would actually get up and go, yeah, let's go do that. It's one thing to admire great athletes, but it's a totally different thing to go out and do what they do, isn't it? The thing about the Christian life is that we we love to read, we love to sing, and we love to teach, we love to hear about the life of Jesus. We admire the example he sets, but I wonder if we're able to say, I'm going to go out and do the same. Because at the core of the church, as disciples of Jesus, we must never forget to actually follow Jesus. To follow the example of Jesus, not just to watch and admire Jesus. The text that was read gives us us an insight into what Jesus calls us to as followers of him. And if we are disciples of Jesus, followers on the way of Christ then the cost is bigger than just watching and cheering Jesus on from the sides. Jesus says, come and do the ultra marathon with me. In the passage, Jesus gives us a few discipleship lessons and and then he follows up with a couple of analogies to help us illustrate the cost and to live a Jesus type of life. Uh, Verse 25 of Luke 14. If you've got your Bibles, you might want to open it, make sure I'm reading from the same text as you, um, it tells us that he had crowds following him. The first thing that we hear is a crowd was following. Jesus already had a following. People were hearing about the things that he was doing, the miracles that he was performing, the teachings that he was uh, doing. They were totally countercultural. They were breaking the societal norms. And the stories have been spreading. Maybe this is the Messiah that we're looking for. Maybe this is the one we're waiting for. So crowds were forming and following him. But much, like, much the same as a good Facebook like, they're about to follow without the commitment of actually being part of Jesus' life. Because if I put something on Facebook, I get people who I haven't spoken to for 20 years pressing the like button. Now, that makes me feel pretty good. I'm like, oh, yeah, that person said hello uh, to me and that sort of thing. But it doesn't mean all of a sudden we have this really close relationship again, does it? It doesn't mean that that we're going to catch up next week and chew the fat and just chat about different things. It just means that we're going to follow from afar. I'm going to keep an eye on what Pete's doing over there, but I'm not going to commit to the relationship. I sometimes feel like turning around to these people on Facebook and going, let's catch up. Let's catch up on the past 20 years. I'm not sure how many would. I get the feeling Jesus sees these crowds. He turns and he looks at them and he sees them and he says, if any of you want to come and follow me, 
but you don't hate your mother and father. You don't hate your wife and children, brothers and sisters. Yes, you don't even hate your own life. You can't be my disciples. And if you don't carry your own cross and follow me, you can't be my disciple. Wow. Travelling with Jesus was no picnic in the park, was it? We sometimes look at the call of those first disciples where they dropped everything, they dropped their net and they followed Jesus and they learned to walk the road with him. But you think about this crowd that's following now, what have they dropped? Maybe a little bit of time. But really, what have they dropped? As a Jesuit scholar, Joseph Fitzmaier, he suggests that the crowds were following Jesus because of the blessing and the wonderful things that he had associated with the kingdom. Because the reality is the crowds were following and they were following because following Jesus was exciting. It was thrilling to see these amazing things. To hear someone speak with authority into the oppression and the rulers of the day. The crowds were following Jesus because of the the assets that came with following Jesus. But what about the liabilities? There's no cost to following Jesus up on the hill. I wonder if as a church of 2020, we've stepped into the trap of following Jesus from afar. That we look for the blessings and the grace and the goodness of God and they are there. They're abundant and they are good. But we just press the like button. How do we follow the ways of Jesus through our everyday situations? How often do we have to make the hard call or do we stand up and make the hard call and be counted as a Jesus follower? Regardless of what it might do to your reputation, regardless to how you might be seen in your workplace, how willing are we to stand up when it puts us at odds with close friends? How often are we going to stand up and say, I'm a Jesus type of person? And stand up for injustice when it might hurt? How often are we going to choose to love above all else when it's inconvenient to us and it might cost us some time and money and energy? Jesus said, you want to keep following, then hate your mother and, brother, uh, mother and father, your wife and your children, your brothers and sisters, even your own life. Now, hate's a pretty strong word, really, isn't it? It is a very very strong word. It's a very strong word. And Jesus chooses this word. He he actually chooses this word because I think he wants the the crowds to know that that following uh, Jesus from afar isn't going to work. But is Jesus really asking us to hate, even hate the ones we love the most? Well, if we look at the, the scriptures, to hate the ones you most actually goes against the very essence of who Jesus is and his teachings, doesn't it? I mean, we heard just a minute ago that Jesus tells us that the second most important command is to love your neighbor. Jesus doesn't speak hate language as such. Rather, this is hyperbolic language that it requests an emotional response to this question. Are you going to count the cost to follow me, even when it hurts, even when you have to go uh, into those spaces where it's going to be tough to make the decision? 
Because it's going to mean that you're going to give Jesus undivided loyalty, undivided allegiance that not even the bonds of family can break. You know, Jesus himself, he modeled it. As a 12-year-old boy, uh, his parents, they were in Jerusalem, and his parents, mother and father, started walking home, and he stayed because he needed to be in the temple, uh, listening to the, uh, the, 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 the teachers of the law and speaking into their situation. And his parents had gone three days. They weren't happy that they didn't have their son with them. And it's understandable. As a parent, if I lost my son for three days, I'd be frantic. But when asked, where were you? What are you doing? Jesus says, why were you searching for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? It's in Luke 2.49. Jesus had an undivided loyalty to what he knew his father was calling him to. Not even the draw of his earthly parents could deter him from following his father in heaven. Discipleship is very much about obedience. See, obedience to the person of Jesus Christ, it has to inform all other decisions we make. It has to inform the decisions we make in our lives about relationships, about others. In all things, Jesus must become first priority. He becomes before all relationships and personal desires. He comes before all of our dreams and ambitions. He comes before our own plans for the future. That's the sacrificial nature of following Jesus. But the turnaround of that is, once you do that, those relationships strengthen. Those relationships start to grow. Those relationships become relationships bonded in Christ. Verse 27 sums it up. Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. We hear these words. We make the leap towards Jesus walking up the hill to his death, cross on his back. I wonder if the disciples had figured that out, that, this was, that Jesus was talking into that space. But there's no doubt that taking up your cross and following was the suggesting, Jesus was suggesting that this is, this is life-giving. You must give your life to this. They would have all seen people carrying their cross to be crucified. Jesus says a similar thing in Matthew 16, verse 24. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Let go of himself and take up his cross and follow me. It's a great cost to follow Jesus. It's a cost that we must weigh up for each of our lives. We say we are disciples, but do we mean spectators? It's a cost that perhaps our culture can't fully grasp. Whilst I was at Newport, there was a young Iranian fellow who came through our doors. He had recently become a Christian in his homeland, and he had to flee his home because his father found out about his decision to renounce Islam and follow Jesus. It became too dangerous to stay in his own home. So he literally fled for his life because he followed Jesus. His journey led him to Australia and into Newport where he continued to follow Jesus in a way that we couldn't really understand. You want, to know, you want to talk to someone about counting the cost of being a disciple? There was a young man that understood. 
Jesus tells the crowd, there's going to be a cross. You're up on the hill and you're, you're observing. But if you want to get down and follow, there's going to be a cost. And he shares with us two sort of analogies, I suppose. A bit smaller than a parable, analogies. First, he tells them about a person who's about to build a tower. He says, if you're going to build a tower, first, won't you sit down and estimate the cost to make sure you have enough money to complete the work? Why? So that you won't be humiliated and ridiculed when you don't finish. <laughs> the second analogy is about war. Who would go to war? What king would go to war with 10,000 people against 20,000 without first considering or weighing up a strategy? Can you actually win the war? And if you can't, then send a delegation to say, actually, I think we're calling for peace. Because the consequence of not considering the cost in war is that many lives will be lost. Both of these analogies come to the same point. If you're going to follow me, you better really understand what's at stake. And you better understand the long-term ramifications. Two things we can learn from these analogies. First of all, we learn that we must consider the cost. I find it interesting, I've never picked up on these passages, in these passages, that the first action that Jesus pinpoints for both of the builder and the king is to sit. He says, first, won't you sit? Jesus makes the assumption if you're going to build a building, you first sit to estimate the cost and see if you can achieve the goal. And if you've owned the house, at some stage you'll, you'll be thinking, I need to do something to it. I've got to change it in some way. I've got to add a, a room or a pergola or something like that. When we were back in our house in, in Croydon um, after seven years of Newport, being in Newport, our kids were bigger. So we lived there before we went to Newport. We rented, rented it out and we've come back into it. Our kids were a lot bigger than they were when we left the house originally and we've added a third child to our family. So the house didn't grow, but we did. So we went back and we love our house. It's a blessed house. It's, lovely. it's a lovely house. But we thought, wouldn't it be great? If we put uh, an outdoor decking with a nice sort of roof over it and a fan in there and um, sort of sort of the cafe blinds and all that sort of thing, and then my creative mind started going, wouldn't it be great if we can lead from our sort of our, our dining area straight out into that area? So we could put uh, one of those big, you know, the big doors that concertina up and have this nice, beautiful open space. So it just becomes like an extra lounge room. Wouldn't it be great if we did that and we could paint everything a little bit and neaten it all up, maybe repolish the floorboards? Wouldn't it be great if we could do all this? We thought this would this be great. It sounds idealistic. <laughs> It was a creative thought, not a practical thought, because we've since found out that in a two-story house, you can't just whack a door in like that. It doesn't sort of work. You've got to brace it. And to brace it was going to cost well over five times more than I had in a budget and then any thought of a budget. And the builder really said, oh, really, I'm not sure it's really going to help your land value, your house value. Imagine we had gone just to an architect and said, hey, draw this up. This is going to be the best. And then we got to uh, the builder and say, build this. It's going to be so good. And they start building and they say, well, we've done your deck and we're about to do your door, but you can't afford it. It's like, oh. Or even worse, if we could do the door and we can't do the deck because we've got a, a, um, a retaining wall out the back. So this beautiful door would open up straight into a retaining wall. It wouldn't, just wouldn't work. <laughs> it's important to count the costs before going ahead with the building. The king that takes his troops to war recklessly without careful planning to sit down and send his troops out, if he doesn't count the cost first, 
then it's going to be chaos. So Jesus is asking us as disciples to sit down and consider the cost of the journey that we're on with Jesus. He's saying, sit down and consider what it might cost you to actually follow Jesus. Stop long enough to thoughtfully consider it. And in considering the cost, decide whether you're going to keep on going at arm's length, looking for the good bits but turning a blind eye to the sacrificial part, or whether you're willing to take up your cross afresh. Because the harsh reality of this passage is that Jesus calls for disciples who are committed and prepared to live sacrificially for him. It's easy to follow Jesus when the blessings are flowing. Yet a blind commitment that only expects blessing can't be used for the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus is telling us. I wonder when you consider the cost long enough, where do you stand with Jesus? Are you still standing back in the crowd on the hill, observing, excited, Because that's not really following Jesus. That's spectating. Or are you stepping up and saying, I'm going to follow regardless the cost? The second thing that I think these analogies call us to is to call us to consider the consequences. Consider the end goal, I suppose. Both of the analogies that have consequence of moving ahead blindly without knowing what the costs may be. And there's nothing worse than seeing a house that was started only to be left half done because the builder went bankrupt or the owner didn't see the cost or the full cost. This is a consequence. People notice an unbuilt house. I almost find it harsh of Jesus to add that little bit to say that people will ridicule you for not finishing, but that's the reality. If you put up your hand and say, I'm going to build this thing then don't get the job done. People will see. They notice. The king who acts without thinking through the cost will have to live with dire consequences. And a disciple who proclaims Christ will be noticed if they take the blessing but don't count the cost as well. Because if you proclaim Christ, a disciple who proclaims Christ must be one who does, is not noticed for their failure to finish the race, but must be one who is uncompromising in their pursuit of Jesus over their life journey. That's what we're being called to. An unrelenting pursuit of Jesus over the long haul, the life journey. Verse 33 ties this all together. It says, In the same way, Those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Consider the cost. Consider the consequences and ask, am I willing to put aside everything to follow Jesus? Paul, in his life and his writings, he reflects this uncompromising, relentless pursuit of Jesus through his missional journeys. In Philippians 1.21, he says, To live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm going to live, I'm going to live for Christ. And if I die, I'm going to be with Christ. This is how I'm going to live. In Philippians 3.8, he says, What is more, I consider everything a loss 
because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. That's someone who has a relentless pursuit of Jesus, uncompromising. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. See, Paul understood the sacrifice of living for Christ. He understood more um, than anyone else might have meant to what it meant to live and profess Christ in a hostile world. Because he began as one of those hostile people. He began as a persecutor. But then his change, his transformation led him to be persecuted. It landed him in jail. It landed him in house arrest. It stopped him from going the places he longed to go. Yet in all circumstances, he professed Christ. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. Everything else is lost. It's a great role model to follow when we think about being a disciple. I suppose my question to you this morning is, are you willing to count the cost of discipleship also? Perhaps you've come here this morning and you might feel that Maybe I'm just a spectator of Christ. I watch him, I admire him, I even love this guy. Yet you're not sort of at that stage where you're actively pursuing Jesus above all else. Perhaps this morning you've been reminded of a time in your life where Jesus was your everything. Yet over time other things have crept in and your discipleship journey hasn't been as strong as it once was. Perhaps bitterness or jealousy has crept in. Perhaps anger or hurt is something you're holding on to and it's taken away your relentless pursuit of Jesus above all else. Or perhaps you're just starting on the journey of knowing Jesus and you're hearing words of Jesus this morning and saying, I want to get off the hill and follow Jesus wholeheartedly. I'm going to pray now. And after I pray, I've got one final story, but the band, you might want to come up. But I'm going to pray, and I'm going to invite anyone who wants to recommit to this discipleship journey, who wants to say afresh to Jesus, I'm, a, I'm going to pursue this relentlessly. I want, while we've all got our eyes closed and praying, just, just before God, pop your hand in the air and say, that's me. I'm no longer going to be a spectator, but I'm going to follow. Let me pray. Now, God, who loves us incomprehensibly, we thank you for the challenge of your word to be disciples who not just stand on the hill and admire, but that we're disciples who make a difference for Christ in our world. This morning, we rededicate our lives to you and we ask your Holy Spirit to move us and bring us to an uncompromising, relentless pursuit of you in our lives regardless of the cost. And if that's your prayer this morning, I want you in your own space just to lift your hand up in acknowledgement of your response to God. While nobody's watching, just between you and God, make this physical movement to say, yes, that's me.
So God, we thank you for those who have made this action in heart and in physical response. And I ask that this week may be the beginning of a cultural change to discipleship in and through the church here at KSBC. Amen. Now, before the band start and I finish up, I've got one final story. Sorry, David. <laughs> um, we started talking about this core of the church, uh, the core DNA of the church. Um, and I've, I've narrowed us down this morning to be individualized. I, I realize that. And, and that's good. So I want to bring it home in a different way with the story. Can you imagine a church community who lived in such a way where each individual disciple counted the cost, who walked the path with Jesus, followed his teachings, enacted his commands, and put him in front of all, all decisions they had, and then came together on, through the week, but through the, uh, on a Sunday, and did that all together? Can you imagine what that would look like? There's a cartoon up at the moment that shows the light church. It says, 24% fewer commitments, home of the 7.5% tithe, 15-minute sermons, 45-minute worship services. We only have eight commandments. You can choose which ones you like. We have three spiritual laws and have an 800-year millennium. Everything you've wanted in a church and less. (laughs) I don't want us to strive for less. I want us to strive for more. I want us to see Jesus in front and center of every decision that we make as a church and as individuals. I want us to go no to that and yes to Jesus doing something great in and through KSBC. I want us to be a Jesus people. Thanks.